starting off here, we're kind of coming to the story of Jesus encountering this group of, of this crowd, and they're kind of having a bit of a shouting match with, with, the, um, with the scribes at the disciples. Now, before Jesus rolls up on, on this group, he is up on the mountain of transfiguration. He's up on this mountain with Peter, James, and John. And as we looked at last week there, he took them up on the mountain, and as they were up there, he was revealed in his glory before them. As, as they were there, Moses and Elijah showed up, like on the mountain out of nowhere, and then a cloud came over, and they were talking with Jesus, and, and Peter's like, hey, let's build some, some tabernacles here, and because he didn't know what to say, of course, and, and it's pretty cool with, when you're with Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and so he's like, hey, let's like stay here forever, let's build some tabernacles, and it kind of just highlighted that Peter didn't really understand who Jesus was, and out of, out of the cloud, God's voice spoke to the disciples there, and he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And, and throughout the book of Mark, this is kind of the thing that Mark has set out to prove, who the real Jesus is. He set out to, to give us an example through the text and, and to prove in the text the real Jesus. Because at the time, the early eyewitnesses were beginning to die off, and Mark set out to write an orderly account. Now, at the time, there was also, you know, there was the, the Jesus story was kind of getting... Um, it was getting confusing. And so that's the purpose for Mark's writing. And the context around his writing was unbelief. And that's why he set out to write it. There were people who didn't really know what to believe about Jesus. And they didn't really, they didn't, you know, it, there were people who, who didn't believe. And so he set out to, to, to carry out this, uh, this account about Jesus. And this is kind of the theme that runs, one of the themes that runs throughout the gospel, this theme of unbelief. And we've seen it in the disciples up until this point, you know, again and again, where they, Jesus has, has showed himself to them. He's demonstrated who he is, the, the, that he is the fulfillment of this prophesied Messiah, and yet they still don't believe. He's done all these things to, to make it completely clear, and God has even spoken you know, there on the mountain of Jesus about who he is. He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And still the disciples have had trouble believing. There's a, a climate of unbelief that kind of surrounds the, the entire gospel. The, the thing that's neat about this is that Jesus continues with them. Jesus isn't uncomfortable with unbelief, but it's what you do with your unbelief you know, is what Jesus is trying to, to get you to, to respond to. Unbelief doesn't make Jesus uncomfortable because he is able to demonstrate who he is. And through his own grace, he is faithful to walk with those who are in unbelief. Now, as we get into it, we'll kind of see there's a difference between unbelief in a sinful sense and unbelief in a sense where you're, you don't know what to believe as this man cries out here where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. But we'll, we'll kind of discover that in the text. And so on the mountain of transfiguration, as they're coming down, Jesus has revealed his glory there to them. And really what he's doing is he's giving them a preview. It's a glimpse into his resurrection, what would happen to him. He's, he is in upon the earth in bodily form as God, and now he's revealing himself on the mountain there as the resurrected Christ in his glory. It says his clothes are, are, are so white that no, uh, 
you know, nobody on earth could bleach them that white. They're so brilliant and amazing that nobody could, could duplicate this. Now, we, he's coming off the mountain here with the disciples, and, and they show up, and it says in verse 14, they came to the disciples and saw a great crowd around them. So this remaining group of disciples here, there's nine remaining, because Jesus has three with them, and they're here, and they're basically just kind of getting beat down by this crowd. There's a crowd that's there. It tells us that um, the, the scribes are there with them. They're, they are the keepers of the law, and so they are trying to continue the ministry of Jesus without him present, because remember what happened earlier in the gospel is that Jesus commissioned them for specific things. In verse 14, it tells us they, Jesus comes to the disciples. There's a great crowd around them. The scribes are arguing with them. And then the, and Jesus had given them a task earlier in the gospel. In Mark 3, he tells, he, as he calls them together, it says in Mark 3, verse 14 and 15, he appointed the 12, these disciples, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, that, they, that he might send them out to preach, and that they might have authority to cast out demons. So those are like the three things that they're supposed to be able to do. Be with him, have authority to preach, and authority to cast out demons. Now, they've demonstrated this already. They, they've already done this. Later in, in the book of Mark, in chapter 6, it, again, it tells us that he called them, uh, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits, or the same, you know, it's synonymous with demons. Verse 12 of Mark 6 tells us, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They, they went out, they did what he said, they preached, they proclaimed that people should repent. And then verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples, they were to be with Jesus, they were to preach, and they had authority to cast out demons. Now here we roll up on them and the scribes and the crowds yelling at them. And when they see Jesus coming, the crowd is just pumped. They are ecstatic. Here's what happened. There's a shift of attention that goes from the disciples to Jesus. Mark 1.22 kind of gives us this idea. It contrasts Jesus's authority with the authority of the scribes. Because if there was anybody who was like the who's who in Israel, it was the scribes who were there with the crowd. And so the disciples are there who are kind of like Jesus' representatives, and then the scribes who are kind of holding it down there, and, and they are like the elite, the religious elite within Israel. But yet, they don't even hold a candle to Jesus. When Jesus shows up, everyone's just losing it. It's like celebrity status. He rolls out, and everyone's just freaking out, and they run to him. Mark one twenty two reveals to us why. It says, And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was not the same as this, the religious leaders of the day. He was completely separate from them, and he had an authority like nobody had seen. When the scribes would teach, they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, you know, and, and here, here is what he says about this portion of the law. But when Jesus would speak, he wouldn't cite other people. He would say, but I say to you, and he says, or, or he says, here, I give you a new commandment. It's like the rabbis would never even dream of, of, of coming in their own authority. But Jesus speaks with his own divine authority, with his own power. And, and so he has this 
authority about him that's given from God that, that the, the scribes, they don't have. And so when they see Jesus coming down off the mountain, this crowd, they don't need to deal with the scribes. They, they don't need to deal with the disciples. But there's, there's a, a divine authority that's coming, and they're excited about it. The crowd is coming. And so the crowd's dissatisfaction with, G, with, with the disciples turns quickly to their, their hope in seeing Jesus. And Jesus comes up to them in verse 16. Look with me, and he says, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd, before anybody can answer, someone from the crowd just is like, you know, yells out, and we find out who it is. It's his father. This father speaks out. He says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So there's his father. He's there in the crowd. And here's what the argument with the disciples and the scribes is about. They have brought, this, this father has brought his son who he describes as, as having a spirit who makes him mute. Now, he also gives us a couple other symptoms. But the first thing there that he indicates is that this is first caused by a spirit, okay, an unclean spirit. He's speaking of a demon. There's a spirit that makes him mute. This, somebody who, you know, you know what mute is? It's like when you're, on, uh, when you're watching TV and you hit the mute button, it turns off all the sound. You know, and it just makes it so you can't hear anything. This is exactly what happened here. And this father is saying, this demon has made it so that my son cannot make noise. He can't speak. He cannot make an audible sound. He has no ability to do that. The, the demon was not simply making this boy sick, but he was attacking him. He was assaulting him. He had bound this boy's tongue, his vocal cords. He had made it so he was unable to communicate. But not only was he unable to speak, it also says that the boy, it seizes him, it grabs him, it, it attacks him, and convulses him. When it's talking, uh, when it says it seizes him, not only does it mean, not only do we think about it in the way where, um, you know, like we would see in movies where the king's like, seize him. And it's like, actually just like grab, grab him and, you know, and apprehend him and hold him down. That in, in a literal sense is what this demon was doing. It, it was going and, and controlling this boy. It was grabbing him and making, making it so that he was not able to function. But more than that, it tells us that it throws him down. He foams. It grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So in the medical sense, he also has seizures. It's, it's seizing him in that similar way. He's experiencing these, these medical symptoms that, that happen. Now, Matthew 17 also gives us a little bit more info. It diagnoses this boy as being someone who has epilepsy. So he's having epileptic seizures in conjunction. But what's happening here is, is these are manifestations of this demon controlling this boy. Some ancient pagans, what they called epilepsy, they called it the sacred disease. It was this common thought that went around, and there's a lot of uh, 
mythology that kind of goes around with epilepsy in ancient times, but the pagans would call it the sacred disease because they believed that only God could heal the sacred disease. Only God could heal epilepsy, and indeed, God would heal. Now, practically here, let me make a couple notes for you, so that way we can kind of clear some things up. Practically, so this boy, he has a demon inside of him that's controlling him. He also is experiencing epileptic seizures that cause him to fall down, to become rigid, to foam at the mouth. These are things that we see happening today in in regular epileptic seizures. Now, there is a difference in Scripture between people who are sick and have medical issues, and there is a a difference between those who are demon-possessed. Those do not always go together. Because you have a medical issue does not necessarily mean that you have a demon in you. It does not mean that. I want to be clear. You can fully be sick. You can fully have a medical issue. You can fully have, you know, problems that you have to have a doctor treat you for that are completely unrelated to demons. Sickness, illness, disease, those are things that are all results of man's sin at the fall. When God created the world, everything was perfect. But when, when man sinned, then death entered the world and disease. And, you know, it, it tells us there that thorns would grow out of the ground, things that, that were detrimental to crops, things that would, you know, decay began. That is the root of where disease and illness comes from. And so, when we think about people who are sick, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a demon in them or that is controlling them, but Satan will often use natural means in a way to distract or destroy. Now, there are, with epilepsy specifically, there are physical and chemical factors that factor in, you know, to a person's brain and the way that they are built up. And a doctor, not an exorcist, is the way to deal with it. That does not mean that we shouldn't pray for them. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have discernment. However, we do need to be realistic that there is a spiritual realm that we're dealing with and there is a physical realm. Sometimes they're in conjunction with one another and a lot of times they're not. And so... Just clear it up, make sure that everybody's clear here. Because you're sick, because someone you know is sick, does not necessarily mean that, you know, we, we don't want to give Satan too much credit there, but we also don't want to, you know, take it in such a flippant way that we're not being aware that Satan uses these things naturally to, um, to cause issues. Now, here's what happens. The crowd, or this father, he asked the disciples to cast out the demon, but they were not able. They weren't able to accomplish what Jesus had given them authority to do. That was like the whole, it was like one of the two things that they were able to do. It was like, you can preach and you can cast out demons. So basically, they weren't able to accomplish what he had enabled them to do. But Jesus, he has the strength and power to accomplish what no human can. And you can see in the 
in the heart of the crowd that all of their hopes, and especially this father, all of his hopes are placed upon Jesus. When all, when all human attempts have failed, he looks to Jesus. Verse 19, after, uh, you know, after verse 18 here, when there's this description of, of the boy and the disciples' inability, Jesus answers this man in verse 19. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus, he responds with this answer. And the, the guy didn't really, he didn't really ask a question. He's just been kind of explaining it. But Jesus is answering the, the, their hearts. He's answering the heart of the crowd here. And he calls them out. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? His cry, Jesus's, Jesus's lament against this people, it's very reminiscent of God's cry to Moses in, um, in the book of Numbers against unbelieving Israel. Very similar. Numbers 14, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Later in Deuteronomy, uh, or previously in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 32, 20, he would, he would go on to say, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So Jesus is using this similar phrasing to liken the, the unbelief the unfaithfulness of the crowd. He's calling this crowd, you know, a perverse generation, one who has seen, just like that unbelieving Israel in, uh, in the book of Numbers, God has done many great wonders among them. He has demonstrated who he is and his faithfulness, but yet they don't believe. And here Jesus is calling out the people in this crowd, the scribes in this same way. Now, he doesn't appear to include the disciples. We can't discern that necessarily here in the English text, but in the original text, in the, in the Greek language, it, the way that he speaks this out, he doesn't seem to be speaking this same indictment to the disciples. They seem to be kind of separated out from this call as the, the perverse generation, this this faithless generation, because what have they been trying to do? They've been trying. They, they, have, they have said, okay, here's what we're called to do. We don't necessarily get it all the way, but we are trying to demonstrate our faith. We're trying to take part in what you've told us to do by trying to cast out the demon. Now, they were unable to do it. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples. He is speaking to the crowd. He's bringing this, this rebuke to the crowd. But then here's what happens. He just says, all right, bring the boy to me. He, he delivers this rebuke, but then he says, bring him to me. The doubt and the disbelief of the crowd, this, this climate of unbelief that's, that is kind of present there amongst the people, it doesn't influence whether Jesus is going to help. Jesus' faithfulness extends way beyond your belief or my belief. He will be faithful even when we are not faithful. He won't, even when we have a hard time believing him, he will not leave us. Even when we cannot, you know, when we fail to place our hope in him, he is faithful even when we are faithless. And in the same way, he will go about helping this boy. 
Now, as they bring the boy to him, it tells us, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So this demon encountering Jesus, it sets off this, this crazy attack, that, this violent reaction, and the demon begins to attack the boy. As the demon sees Jesus, as the boy comes and he sees him there, all of a sudden an attack begins. Now, uh, here's a couple reasons why. One, because the spiritual realm can, knows who Jesus is. We've seen in the past throughout the book of, of Mark, that the demons, from the very beginning, whenever they encounter Jesus, they always know who he is, and they know that he is out to destroy them. They're not confused. They're, they're the, you know, up until kind of this point in the gospel, they are the one group that, like, actually knows who Jesus is and responds, in, you know, in a, in properly to it. It's like you either, uh, receive Jesus or you reject Jesus, and they are rejecting and attacking. They are trying to elicit, you know, some great damage, and they're trying to elicit a reaction from the crowd. And so there's this attack that happens because they know who Jesus is. But not only is this a challenge to Jesus, it's like, okay, no one else has been able to cast me out, so I'm going to make another scene here. I'm going to cause some more damage. And and try to intimidate as well. But also, it was for the benefit of the crowd, not for, not in the sense that it would help them, but it would, it, the, it would enable the crowd to be a little bit more fearful about demons and to want to, to move away. It was, to, it was an intimidation tactic is what would happen. If you saw that, you would be like, you'd be freaked out, and you wouldn't know what to do. It'd be like, okay, that's creepy. You know, like, back it away. I'm jamming out of here. We're just going to leave this guy demon-possessed instead of dealing with it. It's an intimidation tactic that happens here as well. And so the boy may, in fact, be an epileptic, but this epilepsy that is happening here, it's a result of, it's a front for the demon to cause these problems and to, to create these, uh, these issues. Now, this whole scene, it kind of, uh, this whole little section here, it kind of gives us, more insight into the mission of Jesus. Remember, in uh, we looked at earlier in 1 John 3, it tells us that the reason that Jesus appeared, the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the work of the devil. And so here, this is clearly a work of the, en- of the enemy here. Now, one commentator, he, he kind of went about this in uh, explaining this in a, a really neat way that I thought was quite beneficial because as Christians, whenever we kind of face opposition, whenever we face temptation and, and problems, it's, we're kind of trained to be like, eh, that seems like it's a closed door or a roadblock. And so like we should just maybe go a different way. One commentator, he says on this portion about the demon responding to Jesus, he said, this, this response indicates how the presence of God can produce storm and stress before anything constructive is accomplished. Whenever the presence of God is placed into an area and you're trying to do God's will and the presence of God is with you, that can often produce storm and stress before anything good can come out of it. Anything, anything can be accomplished. This is important. Uh, important for us as individuals and important for us as a church plant. For uh, about a year and a half, we had prayer meetings at my house for this church. 
for, you know, for what the Lord was going to do here. When we were living in Santa Rosa, we just met every week and just letting the Lord prepare the way. Because historically, this is a pretty intense area as far as, you know, spiritual nature. Like, you know, it, it, as I would come down and visit and spend time here, walk around the city, pray, the enemy has a lot of strongholds here. And so there's a reality that we need to come into in our minds and understanding that like this isn't a walk in the park this isn't you know we're not we're not coming here on vacation or to visit um and so we wanted to prepare ourselves so the first thing that happens we move here and um after like all this drama of trying to like move and find a job and all this craziness we move here and get moved in and then i go to work the next day my wife goes to clean our apartment and like the very first day we got our house broken into like a bunch of junk stolen. Someone kicked in our door. And it was like at that very moment, like I came home and I was like the one who found it. And I didn't really care that my stuff was stolen as much as like, it just is weird to have somebody like kick in your door and have it like half open. And there's just like a weird feeling that like you don't know who's watching you. You know, like I would have just given people the stuff if they just, you know, if it was easier. I just would have had, would rather have like the security feeling. But in that moment, like seriously, like right away, I was like, this was the dumbest thing ever. I don't know why we came here. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, we should just leave because we can still back out right now. And like in like a moment of like, it was just like this weird thing in like a moment of 30 seconds where the enemy was using that, was attacking me. The Holy Spirit was ministering to me at the same time where I was like trying to like process all these things through the gospel and realize like, no, the reason that why we came is because the people who did that are in a place where they need the gospel. And if I leave, then no one's going to give them the gospel. And so we have to stay and we have to let our door get kicked in. If it's going to have to get kicked in, the enemy is going to use that to, to, to attack us. So that way someone will be here and someone will fight. Someone will fight for the gospel and for Jesus in this area. And so the enemy would, you know, and so it was like this big drama, just that one instance for a lot of weeks, because like when I was always super paranoid whenever I would come home, I didn't know if like people were like around my house. I didn't know the area was brand new. And it was just a huge distraction, but it was something that I had to process with the Lord. But it was only you know, the, the thing that was cool about it, and here's kind of, you know, not only was it an intimidation factor and not only was there stress and storm before the Lord began to use it, but it was, it was cool in the way that I wasn't the new guy on the block. Uh, I moved in, but instantly all of my neighbors were like, you're one of us. Like, you've been here. You know, like, I had instant street cred with everybody. And so... It wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, we don't really know who this guy is. Like, they all saw what happened. They're like, we've never had a break in here in like 10 years. Like, we've never had any drama. And so, like, this is weird. But instantly, like, everybody was like my friend. And then they're like, oh, can you help us install the screen door? So I got to share the gospel with like a ton of neighbors in like a short amount of time because they didn't know how to install the screen door security thing that I installed. And they didn't have tools. So then I went over and helped them. And it just, it just led to like all this crazy fruit. And it was just, you know, it was, it was a, an amazing thing that the Lord turned into, you know, being something useful for his kingdom. Now, there's more of this to come, not just like this sort of drama, but as a church, we're not just seeking here to like meet on Sundays and have like these little Bible studies. We're trying to change a culture. 
And so we're starting slow like the kingdom of God. We're growing slowly in number. We're growing with each other in love and faith. We're wanting to serve each other. So we're in, our mindset here as a church is like we're not at, in a time of peace. Like we as a church need to have the mindset that like we're still at war because Satan is still attacking us. When we want to do things for the Lord, when we want to walk with the Lord, when we want to make good and righteous choices that God is, is leading us in, when we want to do things for the Lord that he has called us to, as the Bible tells us he's prepared good works for us to walk in, we're going to face opposition. Opposition does not necessarily mean that's a closed door. If you think it's a closed door, then, you know, seek counsel from one another. You can come talk to each other. Don't just make up your mind because you think that is the situation. Ask what the Lord is doing. Ask him to give you wisdom in your decisions and to weigh whether this is opposition from the enemy and we need to fight through it with prayer together or whether it's something where it is a closed door from the Lord and we need to go a different way as the Lord leads. So it's a, it's a different mindset to take on. We're not just kind of like sitting here for the heck of it, having these like fun little services and drinking high quality artisanal coffee. It's nice. It's like a perk of it when you come back to like the tent and refresh. But then we go back out into the world and we're at war. It's nice when we get to gather together because it feels good here. We get to worship and sing and get recharged and refreshed as the church gathered. But as the church scatters out into the community, you're out there and the enemy's going to pick you off and he's trying to. And he'll tell you lies. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 21. He asks the father, how long? So this is the trippiest part about this whole thing. He says, bring me the kid. The kid starts freaking out on the ground, rolling around. And Jesus is just like, he just lets him like roll around there. He's like talking to the father, like, all right, you're going to do your thing. Like, fine, do your thing. He's asking the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So Jesus asked him, how long has this been happening? And the, the father says, from childhood. The father's reply, it gives us the severity of, of the situation, how long this craziness has been going on since the kid was little, since he, since he was really young. And he says how, um, and, he, and he goes on to further tell us what's been the result of it. He has often been cast into the fire and into the water to destroy him. What's happening here is this demon is controlling the boy and trying to cast him into the fire, into the water with these suicidal attacks. He's trying to get the kid, you know, to, to kill the kid. It's, it's, it's the, the heart behind Satan. Now, Jesus tells us regarding Satan in John 10.10 10, that Satan's motive, his only chief desire, the, the heart of hearts of Satan is to come to steal to kill and destroy. That doesn't sound like a friend. That doesn't sound like somebody you want controlling you. Someone who is motivated by stealing, killing, and destroying. He goes on in John 8, 44 to tell us the, uh, Satan's desire is murder. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. 
He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So not only does Satan steal, kill, and destroy, but he's a murderer and a liar. This is the reality of the battle that we're in. So we're here in the city living for God's glory, but we're dealing with someone else on the other side who is really out to murder you who is really out to kill you, to destroy you, and to lie to you. Now, when he does, what Satan does, he's tricky because he kind of gets you on both ends. And this is something we need to be aware of as believers out in the city. And, and you know, just in general in our walks. Satan, Satan, it's totally not fair because Satan's whole thing is he gets to tempt you into doing stuff that you're not supposed to do that's against God's law. And he's like, oh, come on, do this. You know, just like he did with Eve in the garden. He's, he called her, he said, oh, did God really say that? Have this. But then as soon as she did it, he's like, you did it. And he pointed the finger. So he's the tempter, but then he's also the accuser. He makes it seem like it's not a big deal. But then once you give in once you obey what he's calling calling you to do then he points the finger at you and condemns you and makes you feel like you're the worst ever so it's totally unfair because he gets both sides and it's not something that we're aware of but it is something that we need to be aware of as believers the other thing is this satan is a liar okay remember that if you remember anything say remember this satan is a liar the other way that he does this, especially in towns like ours, where a lot of you guys are here for school, you know, other, other people are just moved to the area or whatever. He wants to isolate you. And so he'll lie to you. He'll discourage you and create division within the church. This happens through lies and discouragement. He'll be like, oh, He'll make you think stuff and lie to you about things that aren't true. Oh, that person didn't really like call you or hang out with you because they don't really like you or they don't really want you around. They are, you know, they'll, Satan will try to, to tell you things that are untrue, that have no base in reality because he wants to isolate you. The best way to cause, you know, to cause division is to start a little lie and it will create division internally and then it will destroy whatever, you know, you're working on from the inside out. And so we need to be knit together in unity. When the enemy comes and lies to us, that's why we need to respond by filtering those things through the gospel. Did that person say that against me? Maybe, but what does the, go what does the gospel say about them? It says that they're loved by God and I need to, to love them with the love of God. And so therefore, you know, you have to respond in a way that's wise according to scripture, not according to your own emotions or how you feel. Our call as a church is to love each other, to love one another. And so as best as we can, we try not to do drama. And if you got to do drama, that's okay. But we want to deal with it in a real way where we know that we love each other. We want to serve each other. We want to make sure everyone is taken care of. So be aware of that as, as you are living your life here. Now, here's the, here's the other thing I want you to know in, um, in this instance here. Christians cannot be possessed by a demon. They can be oppressed by a demon. That's an external attack but not 
an internal, they can't control you like they controlled this boy. If your life is given over to Christ, the Bible tells us that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, another unclean spirit cannot come in and control you. It can cause drama around you, just like it did with Job in the book of Job, where, you know, his family, you know, or his livestock was killed. Some of his family had external drama, and his friends were coming and discouraging him by telling him a bunch of crazy stuff that wasn't true. There could be external attack. There could be external opposition, but not from the inside. Romans 8.16 tells us this, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit, our soul, that we are children of God. When we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, it bears witness that we are the children of God. We begin to have the desires that God wants because his spirit is within us. Now, the father cries out, he says, have compassion on us and help us. The, the, the thing that the father wants is he wants help. That is the object of the father's request. But the source in which he seeks that help from is out of Jesus's compassion. The father wants help, but he knows that he can only get it out of Jesus's compassion for him. And then Jesus responds back to the man because the man's like, if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus is like, if you think I can do anything? His response is like, if I can? All things are possible for the one who believes, is what Jesus says. The problem is not with Jesus' unwillingness, but with human unbelief. This, this theme that has kind of come throughout the whole thing. Jesus has willingly demonstrated who he is throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. He's shown it again and again and again. But there is this human unwillingness or inability to believe. Now, Paul captures this similar phrasing, and this will kind of help you in understanding this. In Philippians 4.13, it's like the classic everyone's like life verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if you think about that in, um, in contrast to our statement here that Jesus makes, all things are possible for one who believes. So is, is Jesus saying here that if you believe, then you can do anything you want? It, it's very similar to what Paul says here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's in fact being said is that you can do anything you want as long as you are enabled by Jesus to do it. But Jesus is only going to enable you to do the things that are according to his will. He would make this very clear. He would go on to say in Mark 10, 27, things that seem impossible are possible with God. He says in Mark 10, 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He's calling this man to believe. He says all things are possible for one who believes. But he's he's leaving it out there, the only way that he will be able to believe is if Jesus helps him to believe, if Jesus enables him to believe. Now, when Jesus says this back to him, he's not being mean. He's not just like, the guy's like, help me if you can. And Jesus is like saying this stuff back to him in this mean way. 
what he's doing here is he's demonstrating his compassion through kind of opening this man's eyes to the bigger picture where suffering is not, not the biggest issue. He does this in, um, I mean, basically what he's doing here, he's turning his attention, the father's attention, from this instance with his son, and he's turning it to the father's belief. This seemingly hopeless situation, he's taking the attention off, off of the, the situation that seems impossible and says, place your attention upon the one who can do anything. Your attention is in the wrong spot. Your faith is misplaced in the wrong spot. All things are possible to one who believes, but it depends on who you believe. He, he goes on and says, or he's making the point here, excuse me, that place your hope not upon the way that this will be accomplished or what you want to be accomplished, but reorient your mind, your heart, upon the one who can accomplish it. He's calling him to, to take his, and put his active trust in Jesus. Active trust in Jesus is called faith. When you place your active trust, your life, in the hands of Jesus, that is called faith. Now, this, there's kind of like this internal conflict here with the father because he has a situation with his son, but then he also is trying to, to make it where, where he's like conflicted about like whether he thinks this is really going to happen and is unable to demonstrate that, but comes to Jesus again and again. And he says, I believe. So the first thing he tells Jesus in response is, I do believe. And the man has proved it, hasn't he? I mean, he, he's up to this point. He's, he's brought his sick child to Jesus. They weren't there. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to deal with the disciples. He, he got treatment with the disciples. It didn't work there. He's still stuck around. And he's still there trying to figure out, like, what's going on? How am I going to get this done? He has demonstrated that he has believed. And then Jesus responds back to him in kind of like an indifferent sort of manner, it seems, where he's like, Jesus is like, well, you know, you're a perverse generation. And so the man has demonstrated some sort of amount of faith that he does believe. But the thing that he says next is the, is the most key. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. His belief has driven him to action. He has done some things, but he still has this residual doubt here that's, that's sticking around. He says, help my unbelief. Before you can be helped by Jesus, you have to be willing to admit that you don't have it together. You have to be willing to admit that you can't do it on your own, that you can't accomplish what you want to accomplish. You have to be willing to come to the end of yourself and look to him, and only then will you have faith in him when you're able to say, I can't do it myself. You do it. That's what Jesus is calling him to. When he says, help my unbelief, he's asking in a continuous sense. He's saying, please keep helping me with my unbelief. He wants that, that unbelief. He recognizes that he's not in the place where he should, where he doesn't have total belief in, in the situation. And Jesus demands a fuller trust out of him. But the man responds in the way that we all should respond when we have unbelief. Remember we talked about the way that there's a, a way to have unbelief that's, that's sinful, and then there's a way to have unbelief that's okay. 
the way that, has, uh, that, that we see that's sinful is likened to this unfaithful generation where it's been demonstrated and they didn't believe. You know, the, Jesus has proved who he is and they don't receive him and they're still in unbelief. But then we see the man here. And he, has, he doesn't necessarily have a huge you know, history with Jesus, but yet he says, I believe, help my unbelief. The difference here is that the man is repentant of his unbelief. He says, I know my unbelief is not okay. I know that it's not good for me to be holding on to this. Help me with it, Jesus. I cannot continue to have this. I can only believe if you help me to believe. This is the point in which this man moves from someone who is in unbelief to someone who is a believer. When he yields his own insufficiency to Jesus, he makes that, that transition. Now, we also have to remember is that when we're, when we're dealing with exercising our faith and belief, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. And so, for an example, if I was to come and to sit down in any of the contraptions that my kids have made for me, it's like, oh, we made a rocket ship, come sit down in this. It's like, I know when I'm about to get into it, there's like a 90% chance that I'm going to break it and smash it. They're going to cry and I'm going to like probably get hurt because they've built something really sketchy. And my faith in the object is not very strong because I know that it's not, it's not together. But if I come to one of these seats or any of you guys come to one of these seats and you sit down in any of these chairs, you sit down with full confidence in it because you've sat down in it every week. You've come again and again and you continue to sit and there's no doubt in your mind when you go to sit down that it will hold you. That's how practical jokes are born. It's like it's playing on people's faith. It's like you think this is going to happen and we switched it up on you. Your confidence and your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. And so when, we, when Jesus is calling to place our faith in him, he's also calling us to recognize how faithful he has been. We can place our faith in him with complete assurance because he has continually been faithful. It allows us to relax when we know that the object of our faith is completely strong. It is without weakness in any way. Jesus is fully worthy of our faith. Now, let's finish up quickly because we're running out of time. He goes on. It says in verse 25, And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Jesus rebukes the spirit. He, he commands. He's, he's expressing his divine authority over the spirit. And then he says, never enter him again. Don't even think about going back into uh, that boy. What's being represented here is Jesus' total victory over Satan and death. Remember previously to this, the, uh, upon the Mount of Transfiguration, it was... It was 
a representation, a glimpse into Jesus' resurrection. And, at, and we know at Jesus' death and resurrection is when Satan is defeated. It's when the demonic forces have no more authority because Jesus has defeated them once and for all. And so here in the text, likewise, this, this demon is not allowed to enter this man anymore because it's representative of Jesus' total victory over that realm. Now the demon, he makes a big deal when he comes out of the boy. It says that he's, he's crying out and convulsing him terribly and it came out. The demon kind of wanted this one last shot. It wanted to attack the boy on the way out and make this last show and intimidate everybody on the way out. And the first kind of evidence here, uh, or the first kind of test of the father's faith that has to happen, it comes pretty quickly after he says, Jesus, help my unbelief. And so we'll see what happens here. Right after the spirit comes out, it says in the text that most of the people in the crowd said he's dead. The, the spirit, the, the, the demon did such a crazy work that it thrashed this kid so much that the kid's just laying there looking like he's dead. And so it, took, it takes complete trust for them to not, for the father to not freak out, to not lose it and be like, Jesus, you said you were going to help me. You told me to believe, and I believed. He is con continually having to trust Jesus, even in this situation here. But then look, look what happens. Jesus takes him. He, he, lifts, he takes him by the hand, lifts him up, and he arose. Now, the last question that the disciples had as they were coming down the mountain was what it meant, what the resurrection meant. Because Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this, this thing on the transfiguration where God spoke out of the cloud and said, you know, this is my beloved son. You know, listen to him. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody about that until the resurrection. And they were like, what is the resurrection? What is that even about? Like, what is this stuff you're talking about? They're talking with each other about that. That was the last question that they had that they never even asked Jesus. But here, Jesus kind of gives them a little bit of a glimpse into what that looks like. He said, he, it says there that he, Jesus takes the boy by the hand, this, this boy who, who appeared to be dead, like a corpse. He lifts him up and he arose. It actually has that similar phrasing, the same way that Jesus was, was lifted up. He was raised up. And so Jesus is kind of giving them a little bit of an analogy here in the, the saving of this boy. He provides this analogy to his death and resurrection. Now, this is interesting. Um, in, in 1520, there was a painter, Raphael, one of the great you know, masters, and he painted this piece called The Transfiguration. And I know last week I kind of joked about the fact that we wouldn't show an image from the transfiguration because it looks like the like Jesus and Moses and Elijah are doing parkour in the air. But I actually have one um, because even Raphael, you know, he tied these two passages together where Jesus' resurrection glory and Jesus being raised from the dead there at the transfiguration is it's seen here in our text this morning through Jesus raising this boy the, the demonic realm coming against him and doing their worst, but yet God raises this boy from the dead, this, this man's son. It's God who raises him up and brings life back into his body. And so here's the, here's the picture, if you can see it. It's really cool. They're, they still kind of look like they're doing parkour on the top. But the painting, it captures the disciples um, on, the, on the bottom, 
the, the scene that we're looking at this morning is kind of on the bottom half of the painting. And there's the possessed boy in the crowd at the bottom. And, and the crowd is, is there and they're, they're having, some of them having an argument. But then around the boy, you can see on the, on the right-hand side there, there's, the, there's a couple who are pointing up to Jesus on the mountain. Now, they couldn't actually see it in real life, so it's a painting, obviously. But what's happening here, the crowd on the bottom is painting to Jesus in his glory, who will not only defeat the demon that's on the bottom there, but what's being represented here is that Jesus will defeat all demons, all Satan, once and for all through his death on the cross. And it's a representation of of that um, in, in the painting here. These texts are tied closely together, the transfiguration and, the, and the, the healing of this boy. It represents God's total victory over Satan. Now, here's what happens. Verse 28, they entered a house and his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, in some of your versions, it might say prayer and fasting, and that's because those things go together. It's not like you have to pray and fast. It's not about the magic, you know, quote-unquote, of prayer or the magic of, like, fasting. Like, oh, you're super spiritual, and so therefore you're able to, like, do spiritual things. That's not what he's getting at. What's happening here is that the disciples, they couldn't do what Jesus had enabled them to do because of their lack of preparation in their heart and in their spirit. Their failure was due to the fact that they were prayerless, that they hadn't spent time in prayer. They lacked power in their lives because of their inability to pray. Now, remember earlier we talked about in in Mark 3, what Jesus had called them to do. When he called them, it tells us he appointed 12, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, they might send him out to preach, and they might have authority to cast out demons. The first thing that he called them to do was that they might be with him, and then that they would preach, and then that they would cast out demons. Their ability to preach and their ability to cast out demons was to be an overflow of their time with God. And because they hadn't spent time with God in prayer, they were not able to do the other things. These other things are not, are not like abilities that they have on their own to just go and accomplish these tasks. They are things that overflow out of their relationship with God. They're directly connected to their intimacy with God. Now, it's interesting that Jesus tells them this can only be, be cast out by prayer because prayer, their inadequacy basically drives them back into prayer, which is being with God again. It's kind of like a loop. It's like, okay, you weren't with me, you weren't in prayer, so you're going to get driven back to prayer because you were inadequate for the job, and it will call you back into, into relationship with me. And then you will be able to go and do what I've called you to do. Now, lastly, how do we cultivate our faith? As we said, our faith is only as strong as the object in which we place it. And the object of our faith is Jesus. And so if we want to have faith, as Jesus was calling this man to have, 
You know, we say we believe, but help my unbelief. How do we help that unbelief? Well, Jesus said, he called the disciples into prayer. He, and the man's cry to Jesus was quite literally a prayer. He said, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a good prayer to pray, you know, to cry out and ask Jesus for it. In the same way that Jesus called the disciples to be with him, we must be with him as well before we go and do anything else. God doesn't want us to do stuff for him. He wants us to know him and do things with him. So we want to be with him. But later in the book of Romans, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if we want to grow in our faith, we must be with him both in prayer and as Paul says, you know, if we want to have faith, it must come through the word of God, through hearing the word of God. And so those two are the ways to grow in our faith. As we grow in our faith, as we saturate ourselves with Jesus, we will be able to know him more intimately, to respond more wisely, and to do the things that he is calling us to do, but we're only able to do them because he has enabled us to do them. And so that's something that, that you know, needs to be all of our prayers as we seek to live Jesus' glorifying lives in the city. It's like the hardest thing in the world. It's not an easy place to live. It's not an easy place to like get your schedule going, to be purposeful with your life for the glory of God. We desperately need God's enabling to do that which he has called us to do. So let's ask him for that. Lord, we're thankful just for another time, Lord, where we can see your faithfulness, Lord, where we can see your goodness. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us rely on you, depend on you, Lord. And, and Lord, as that is our prayer, Lord, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to make that our prayer again and again, to, to be repentant in the areas in which we struggle, in the areas in which we doubt and have problems. Lord, we need you. We can't do anything apart from you. Lord, we need you to empower us to live Jesus' glorifying lives in the city, to, to just, even just to live a, a mediocre life, Lord, but you have life abundant for us. And so help us, Lord. Call us, Lord, to that and enable us to walk worthy of that calling in which you've called us. And so, Lord, we look to you. We rely on you. We need your help, Lord. We confess that we cannot do it without you. We love you. Amen.